Our Father, we're thankful that You have provided the plan of salvation to each member of the human race, that this salvation plan is perfect, that it provides for everything that we will ever need for eternity, that it is designed from beginning to end through grace and administered in history through the Holy Spirit on the merits of Jesus Christ. We ask in His name tonight that the Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts for the great truths concerning His person. Amen. Uh, if you have your notes, <clears throat> going back a chapter or so, if you turn back to the page 43, we'll review a few things about uh, some of these doctrines. While we're turning there, page 43, uh, for those of you who didn't make it to the Q&A last week, one of our uh, um, Ted Moran... Uh, this is a comment on the license, the um, tail thing that you often see, you know, the ichthus. Actually, this is not spelled co- totally correctly here, but um, and then the evolutionists have come along with a fish and they put Darwin in the middle of it with feet. So uh, we go along here and, and we have truth, a bigger fish eating the little one. I thought that was a very graphic illustration of strategic envelopment that we've been looking at. Um, in the way the Christian is to pre- pre- prevail and to overcome error, that you you uh, swallow the other position up inside your framework. And failure to understand this uh, it explains why oftentimes we feel so frustrated in dealing, say, with occultists and others, is because really what we've done is we've permitted the other side to absorb us into their frame of reference. And it's quite the other way around. Um, So we want to just remember this as we go through a lot of the great truths in Scripture. Well, um, we've been looking at the the birth of the king and the life of the king. And out of the birth of the king, we we associate with his birth, with the incarnation, uh, the doctrine of the hypostatic union. That Jesus Christ is God and man, undiminished deity and true humanity. And that doctrine is the foundation of all Christology. And as we'll see tonight, it also is a um, necessity when we start talking about kenosis and other things with the life of Christ. The thing to remember about the doctrine of hypostatic union is that, once again, we see that God who has these divine attributes. He is sovereign. He is love. He is holy. He is omniscient. And then we said He's also omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, eternal. And we could go on and on mentioning His attributes. That man is the only creature made in His image. Of all the parts of the universe, man, not a Martian, not somebody from outer space, but a man from planet Earth is the only point in the universe that's analogous to God. So man has analogous attributes. To sovereignty, we have choice. We can experience love, but it's finite love and therefore unstable. Holy, we have conscience a faculty that God has put into the soul to reflect His holiness. We have 
finite knowledge. And these correspond to his attributes. They're an analogous relationship. So that now we have the hypostatic union. And what does this tell us? If we know first the creator-creature distinction, then we can understand what the hypostatic union is doing. And this is why the Bible is written in the sequence in which it is written. The Bible does not start out by talking about Jesus Christ. It starts by talking about creation because it's at that point where the creator-creature distinction is made. Failure to understand that prevents, I say, prevents us from understanding who Jesus Christ is. You've got to have these basic tools, these basic concepts. And this is why the Holy Spirit, being a perfect teacher, administered history pedagogically. History is actually a sequence of lessons from God to man. And this is a whole other study in dispensations about how God does teach that way. But nevertheless, there's this sequencing that goes on. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ now, because He has true humanity and He is God, He has all these attributes. And the question now is, how do these attributes interplay? Well, the hypostatic union tells us that however they interplay, this is undiminished. So all those attributes are undiminished. They're not changed. They're not modified. They're not reduced. Whatever. They remain as potent in the sun while he was walking around on this planet as they did in eternity past, as they will in eternity future. Never changed, never compromised, never reduced, and never altered in any way. Then, because he is a man now, now something has changed because the God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity has gone through a metamorphosis that the first person of the Trinity, the third person, didn't ever do and never will do. He is put in union with humanity. And this makes the second person of the Trinity very, very significant. It also has all kinds of implications. And on page 43... I listed some of the implications of that doctrine. These aren't just big theory, big philosophic things. They are those. This is why Paul in Colossians 2.8 says, Be not deceived and don't be led astray by the philosophy of this world, but uh, this, according to the elements of this world, but follow according to Christ. Meaning that we, this is where people ought to start with their philosophy. They ought to understand before they even start philosophizing the whole issue of the hypostatic union. They should understand the issue of the creation. They should understand how these interplay. And after that, we start talking about philosophy. But everybody wants to start talking about philosophy before they've ever covered this and then try to fit this inside their philosophy. It's backwards. So, on page 44, remember we had one of the implications being that the creator-creature distinction always exists never changes, never is mixed, it's never blurred, even in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's humanity and His deity do not intermingle. Now, how they don't, and yet He's one person, we don't understand that because God is incomprehensible. But we must defend the fact that Jesus did not become half God and half man at this point. He was fully God and fully man, not half and half. And if that's true of Him, then it's true of us. And we will never, ever, in heaven or eternity, ever know as God knows in the sense of becoming omniscient. That passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is about something else. 
The second implication that we said is, the second paragraph there, is that God cannot reveal himself any more than he does through men. I mean, the magnificent power and beauty and splendor in creation. God is an artist. God, God has great artistry. And you can observe it. You can observe it in the plant material around us. You can observe it in the physics of the universe around us. Uh, he's a mathematician. He's an artist. All these things. But most fully he is known to man through man. And that's why the Holy Spirit witnesses the salvation gospel through us, through people. Not through the dogs, cats, or anything else. It's through people that carry the gospel. Well, in the case of Christ, because Christ is made in the image of God as human, in His humanity, when God became man, you have the epitome of all revelation. Okay, the third thing that we said is that history has eternal significance. Here you have God combining with man who lives in history and who lived for some 30 to 33 years walked around the planet and then left this life and has been in his humanity resurrected and is at the Father's right hand. So that means that when the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation appears on the throne as a lamb has been slain, he bears the marks of the crucifixion. So always and forever, in eternity, if we are able in eternity to constantly glimpse his body, we will be reminded of history because the scars on his body are the cumulative effect of history. What does that mean? History is not just a dream in the mind of God. And that's important because this tendencies has been in church history to drift over into that area and make history just utterly insignificant and it's like it doesn't make any difference whether it ever happened or not because as long as God planned it. Well, God had a plan for history, obviously. But the plan for history and history are two different things. At the instant of creation, there was the plan and history. The instant before creation, there was only the plan. So history has significance. Now, all that plays, plays a role in what we have to, to go over to uh, the doctrine tonight. Finally, on page 45, we said a fourth implication, which we just got through mentioning, was that the starting point, not the end point, the starting point of serious, systematic thinking must begin with a person of Jesus Christ because in the person of Jesus Christ combines God and the creation. Okay, now we're moving over to the material of tonight. And we're looking at kenosis. And we're going to see the implications of the doctrine of kenosis. But just to review a little bit, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 again. This is the passage from which the word kenosis comes from. In uh, verse 5 of chapter 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the picture there is, in our sanctification, we are to, put, to imitate 
the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, who although, and then, it, and then here's where the word uh, emptying himself, verse 7, is coming up. And we'll look at the context again. Who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him, and so forth and so on. Now we quote that and read that usually in connections with the Christian life and, and sanctification and so on. But please notice, verses 5, 6, and 7 ground, that is, put a basis, a foundation, underneath the Christian life that is very difficult to understand. That's the difference between the New Testament and books on ethics like Confucius or some business success book or something like that. They can all talk about what's right, what's wrong, and this and that. But you'll notice when Paul goes to talk about what's right and wrong, he insists on bringing in the whole universe to build a basis for what he's saying. Which ought to warn us that without that basis, we can't have our ethics. We can't have the Christian life. It does matter what we believe about these basics. If it didn't, the Bible wouldn't be constructed this way. So these doctrines, while they're very difficult to understand and so forth, just know that they're woven into the warp and the woof of the New Testament. And they appear just like almost casually. I mean, just look at this, look at this chapter 2 in Philippians. He starts out in verse 1 and 2, and it looks like it's a normal letter, and he's talking about things socially, things ethically. And then for some unknown reason, in verse 5, 6, 7, and 8, we have one of the most profound doctrines in the whole Christian faith. The doctrine of kenosis, of the God-man Savior, and how the two natures of Christ interact. Well, why is that thrown into the text? It must be thrown into the text for a reason. And the reason is that Jesus Christ is the model of sanctification. See, earlier when we had gone through the frame of reference from uh, the Old Testament, remember we associated various doctrines with various events. And one of the events here was the conquest and the settlement. And you remember the sequence in the Old Testament? Because God teaches history pedagogically. Lesson one, lesson two, lesson three. And these events are sequenced with that in mind. So you have the call of Abraham. What is that? That's election. That's a separation. Remember? God interferes. God intrudes into human affairs. He does it his way, not our way. And so he decides which way history is going with the call of Abraham. So immediately, right up front, we have an intrusion, a catastrophic intrusion of the plan of God. Then we have the Exodus, which is analogous to judgment and salvation. It's like the flood of Noah. It's a great judgment upon the separation of, of the saved and the unsaved. So there's salvation. Then Mount Sinai, after salvation. Please notice, salvation is not by works. Salvation is not by keeping the law. Law wasn't around. See the sequence? We protect ourselves theologically if we just always remember the sequence of revelation. So here, it's easy to remember. Which comes first, Sinai or Exodus? Exodus comes first. So, what happens then? We're saved before the law. The law comes afterwards because it's the law that is revealed to those who are saved. It is what God's will is for those who are interested in His will. 
Then, after that, we have the conquest and settlement, the rise and reign of David. And then, remember, we went on, we talked about Solomon. And notice the doctrine that kept coming up again and again and again and again. It was sanctification, 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 sanctification. That is, becoming conformed to God's holiness. And we said the goal of sanctification is to obey God, to love Him with all our heart, mind, and soul. Well, the problem is, as you look back in history, conquest and settlement, you saw failure. Sanctification was never finished. Rise and reign of David. Sanctification was compromised. Murder, adultery, and so on. Golden era of Solomon. You had growth and wisdom, and then total materialism, total collapse of the culture. Uh, you had chastening and repentance, and the kingdom divided, the kingdoms in decline, more chastening. In the exile, you had uh, the final separation of the people. So all these were contaminated. But when we come to the person of Jesus Christ, there is no contamination. So he becomes the model. And that's why in verse 5, he comes into the discussion solidly as the example. Well, we want to then deal with him as an example, and we can't deal with him as an example until we understand something. We can't just talk about Jesus. We have to think about Jesus. Sometimes our mouth gets 50 miles ahead of our minds. So let's look at what's happening here with Jesus Christ. Remember last time, and the notes on page 67, I took the attribute of omniscience. And I said, if you look at those verses in Mark 5, 9, 6, 38, 9, 31, John 6, 6, remember we looked up those verses? And in those verses... Um, Jesus asked for information. It appeared clearly that he did not have omniscience in those passages. So, those passages emphasize this, his human knowledge. And when you see those passages, he's operating out of his humanity. But then, and then we went through that passage in Isaiah, that wonderful passage that Hengstenberg in the 19th century brought out about the messianic flavor of how Jesus awoke in the morning by the call of the Father every morning. Uh, morning by morning, you teach me, and so on. Uh, and we won't spend time tonight on that, but that's a great, great passage, that Isaiah 54 through 11 passage. But then we concluded by turning to John 1.48, John 2.24, John 16.30, John 21.17, and got, there you have Jesus clearly showing his omniscience. So there, omniscience is shown. So now, what is this person? He walks around sometimes showing omniscience, other times not. Most of the time, by the way, not showing omniscience. Then we also went, uh, second paragraph on page 57, we took another attribute, his omnipotence. And you remember one of the great temptations. Satan came to Jesus, tempting him to make stones into bread, which would have required the exercise of his omnipotence. So Satan very clearly knew something. Now, we've got to think about this. If Satan attacked Jesus Christ, it was a destructive attack. It was ill-motivated attack. What would have happened? Let's think about that for a minute. Here Jesus Christ is God and he is man. Satan wants to stop Jesus Christ and the way he chooses to do it in the temptation is to get him to use his deity when he shouldn't. Make those stones into bread. So it's a clear 
issue that the New Testament is making that Jesus Christ was submitting to His Father in how He was using His deity. Because clearly, He wasn't going to use His deity that way. Clearly, the Lord Jesus Christ had a mission to face down Satan utilizing the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, indwelling His humanity and meeting Satan that way. Now, why do you suppose this is a big issue here? It's because Jesus Christ is our model. If Jesus Christ had met Satan with His own omnipotence, He couldn't be our model and our sympathetic high priest. So this is why in the Gospels, read Him carefully and watch. When you read through the Gospels and you read the life of Christ, questions ought to rise up in your mind. And these will help make you better observer of the text. Ask yourself whether in this passage I am reading, Jesus is operating with His true humanity, or whether we're seeing in this passage a momentary flashing forth of His deity. And it just flashes forth and then comes back again. You don't really see it too long. So, watch when you read the Gospel. All four Gospels do this. And it's kind of fascinating to read Christ's life in that light. Analyzing always. Am I looking at His humanity or am I looking at His deity? In some passages you can't tell because they're mixed together and somehow He shows both His humanity and His deity. And that's a whole study in itself. So I'm just saying that when you look at the New Testament text, you will be challenged as you think more deeply about the person of Jesus Christ to pinpoint what it must have been like to walk around with this guy. I mean, it was clearly a challenging situation. Now, we're going to state the doctrine of kenosis. We discussed it and stated it last week, but on the top of page 58, first, the second sentence, that is what we're stating to be the doctrine of kenosis. That is... It refers to the giving up of the independent use of the divine attributes, meaning that the Son volitionally chose to submit completely to the first person. And in His life, the decisions all flowed out of the Father's will. I can do nothing except what I see my Father doing. And Paul was very, very impressed with this. As Paul reflected upon the person of Christ, because remember, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 here in Philippians 2, are Paul, Paul's being aided by the Holy Spirit. But this is Paul's own literary, original thoughts about the person of Christ. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, yes. Guided by the Holy Spirit, yes. Revealed by the Holy Spirit, yes. But Peter didn't have this thought. John didn't have this thought. This is Paul's thought. This is something unique, true, and, and preci- highly precise statement of Christ. So, Paul was impressed by the fact that though the Son had all these divine attributes, he deferred the use of them to whenever his father okayed it. And if his father didn't okay it, he didn't do it. So, that's why we say kenosis is not... Notice what we're not saying here. There's a false doctrine of kenosis that liberalism has taught the church. That is, that Jesus Christ gave up His deity. Not saying that. Notice what it says. 
we are giving up the independent use of the divine attributes, not the attributes. The attributes didn't go away while Jesus was walking around. They remained. He, they could have broken forth at any time. Remember what he said at the cross as he was praying about Gethsemane? What did he say? And all I have to do is send the word and there will be legions of angels here. I don't have to put up with this. I don't have to stick with this. But if our salvation was to be secured, he did. Because to secure the plan of salvation, he had to operate according to the protocol of the Father. And that was the terms. That was how our salvation came about to be generated in history. So every blessing that we have, every part of righteousness that's credited to our account, all the blessings of grace that flow to us come about because of the obedience of the Son. We must never forget that. It's the cross is free, yeah, free to us. But it cost Him. And it wasn't just the pain of the cross. It was the decision to obey the Father that led to the cross. So, all this is wrapped up in this person of Christ. Now, I quote a Catholic Christologist here because in this case, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism agree. Protestantism and Catholicism have very similar Christologies. The church didn't split in the Protestant Reformation over Christology. It split over soteriology. That is, how do you save? So we can be one with Roman Catholics in the area of Christ, in, in most areas. Now, there's some philosophic areas where we'd have to differ. But notice what Carl Adams says. This is, this is a Catholic theologian expressing the hypostatic union doctrine. Now, look at his sentence where it says, every time his messianic mission made it necessary, he could draw with the cup of his human intellect from the infinite spring of divine wisdom. Usually it remained potential knowledge, not actual. It remained in his unconscious, hidden beneath the threshold of his daylight consciousness. Only when his hour was come could he and might he, by way of contemplation, realize this potential knowledge. Now what Adam is trying to describe here is what's going on inside. And it's very difficult, it's speculative. But it's an attempt to try to think through how Jesus was thinking as he walked through life as the God-man. And the key that you want to note is the italicized sentence following that paragraph where it says, the canonic state can be viewed as a special extreme case of the general intra-trinity subordination. Now we want to watch this because we're coming up now on some very controversial stuff in Christian circles about that follow out of this. And it's controversial because nobody knows, studies basic doctrine anymore. You know, that goes out the window. Who knows about the hypostatic union? Uh, first church for the first 500 years knew about it, but we don't. We're, we're advanced. So, we have Jesus Christ as the Son. Now, before Jesus Christ was incarnated, he was still the Son before the Incarnation. Now the question is, before He was incarnate, what was the relationship of the Son to the Father? Well, the Trinity still existed, always has existed. And there's always this progression in the Trinity. In fact, in the most obvious way, that's why the first person is called Father and the second one is called the Son. 
Now, if those, the nouns, father and son, didn't denote something, maybe the themes of the Trinity would have been A and B, or C and D. But God the Holy Spirit, who's the revealer, has chosen those vocabulary words. The Father is a noun that the Holy Spirit has picked out to teach us something about the relationship of the Father to the Son. It's analogous to a father, son, and a family in some way. Now, both the Father and the Son share the same attributes. But the relationship between them is analogous to a father and a son relationship in a normal human family. Or we could invert it like we want to. Good exercise for us to think about, refresh our minds, sanctify them, is turn these relationships upside down and say, the relationship between a father and a son in the human family is patterned after a prior relationship of the father and son in the Trinity. And when you invert things like that, it's like, we often talk about anthropomorphisms, you know, where God appears as a man. And I like to invert that and say, well, man is a theomorphism. It's God is the primary one. We're the secondary ones. We're the derivative products. Okay, now we want to move to the implications of this. What do we learn about practical life from this kenosis? We've run it through the grid here. We've looked at it. We know that it has obvious applications because Paul is using it. I mean, he thought about this in the middle of a very practical letter of Christian exhortation. Okay, the last paragraph on page 58. In Philippians 2, Paul is concerned with a heart of sanctification, a goal of loyalty toward God regardless of what he asks. Look over in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Now watch it. Watch what happens here. Notice the lead-in, because that tips us off as to the linkage of the doctrine of kenosis with its application. In verse 3, just as he eases into verse 5, what was the last few things he's emphasizing in verses 3 and 4? It says, let each of you regard one another as more important. The attribute of humility in verse 3. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Then in that context, he says, you have a model. And the model is the person of Jesus Christ. And you see, one of the things that Paul does, it's so different from the way the world works. And I don't know what he notices about Paul's writings, and it's true of the other apostles also, is that they, they put these deep things in the middle of what we would call practical passages. And you wonder, well, are they trying to turn us into theology professors? Why do they do this? The answer, I think, is that that's how we derive energy and motivation. We don't derive energy and motivation by saying, you've got to live the Christian life, you've got to live the Christian life, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do this. Operation Bootstrap. And what we wind up is getting frustrated and, and just we get tired of that stuff. And we, we blow out after a while. We burn out. In the Scriptures, the way the energy and the motivation come is by shutting everything off 
and concentrating on who God is. Ultimately, that's where the energy comes from. It's like going outdoors and looking at the sun. And you get warmth and healing from the sun. You receive before you can give. And we have to comprehend and behold our God. And from beholding Him, as we would just go out and sunbathe, if we bathe our spirits in His presence, understanding who He is, it energizes us. It gives us that sustaining strength to meet the times of life. And it's a lot easier to do than trying to do this, do that, do this. I've got a schedule for that. got to do something for that. We have to have the planning, obviously. But that's not where the energy comes from. The energy comes from somewhere else. And here's the most eloquent passage. Look at the tense of the verbs in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3 and 4. What kind of, what kind of uh, a mood, shall I say, that they're all imperatives, right? They're imperatives. What, what, is, what is verse 2 for? Make my joy complete. That's not an indicative verb. That's an imperative mood. That's a command. That's an order. In verse 3, do nothing. Do, do. That's an imperative mood. It's not a description. It's not an indicative mood. So all these are imperatives. Verse 4, do not look out for your own personal. Is that indicative or imperative? It's imperative, right? Then in the middle of that, he says another imperative and leads into the theology. The imperative is, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then the rest of it is all indicatives. They're all descriptive moods of the verbs. So why do the imperative verbs stop and the indicative moods start? Because it's the indicatives that describe the person of Jesus Christ to which our attention is directed. Looking to Him. This is what it means to look to Him. It doesn't mean meditate and think up thoughts about Jesus on your own. It means to take the Scriptures and understand and receive from the Scriptures a scriptural insight into the person of Christ. So now the implications of kenosis. First one, bottom of page 58, is connected right here in Ephesians 2 with the attribute, or with the, with the virtue mentioned in verse 3. What's the virtue that's mentioned in verse 3? Humility. Let's see of that for a minute. The foundational virtue in the biblical worldview is not courage. It is not self-righteousness. It's not love. Now, you can go to pagan literature, and there were great ethical pagans. Don't ever think that paganism is debauchery. Now, some people have a connotation that, that you use the word pagan and it means debauchery. That's only probably because that's the only context they've seen. I mean, paganism has had great moral teachers. Confucian was a pagan, but he was a great moral teacher. So the issue then is, what is the prime virtue? If you read these ethical teachers of the world system, business success books today, read a story in the Baltimore Sun a week or two ago now. Big story featuring Stockdale and his famous uh, POW. Going back to Stoicism. Stoicism is coming back into the business world. Stoicism is coming back into the men in the street. The average bookstore now is going to sell books with, with, with uh, regurgitated Stoicism. Well, the problem is there's no drive. There's no motive. There's no energy source for all that. 
The reason people drift to Stoicism is because for the, the pendulum problem. We've had a lot of licentiousness and hell-raising going on for the last two, ever since the hippies of the 60s. And people are getting tired of this. We have to have a, something new. So the pendulum's swinging back over now. We've had, uh, you know, we've had a clear case in the high, the high school situation of uh, kids really far out into all this stuff. You know, you go over to the mall and see black fingernails and so on, and, and this has become a, an emblem and a symbol of nihilism. That's where it's all come. Kids don't know Nietzsche from the hole in the ground, but that's actually where it's all, one of the sources of it. And so this has gone on now for a generation. And now the pendulum's starting to swing back, and we're going to go back to illegalism. And we've always done this. And the legalism will last for a while, and then nobody has any energy to fight it anymore, so then we go out and do a licentiousness again. You know, pendulum always going like this. Well, in the scriptures, the basic starting virtue is not the fruit of virtue. You see, there are virtues that follow. Peter, listen, remember, add to faith, hope, and he goes to that sequence of virtues. Well, notice that when Paul starts out, and, and we've seen this intuitively as we work, is that it gets back to the creator-creature distinction. Um, well, you've seen that overhead that I show all the time. If we have the creator-creature distinction in our heads, we'll automatically have humility in our hearts. Because you can't believe that, that you're a creature and he's the creator, and not be humbled by it. So the attribute or the, not attribute, the virtue of faith is humility. You know, Jesus made a very startling statement in John 5. I forgot what verse it is now. But it, it's scary. Uh, in there, he addresses a group of people on the street and he says to them, you know, you people can't believe. I mean, you people really have a big problem here. I understand it. You can't believe. He says, you can't believe while you're sitting there seeking honor from one another. And you don't seek the honor that comes from God alone. And if that's your situation, you are never going to believe. You can sit there and say, I believe, I believe, but blend to you blue in the face. And it's all phony. Genuine faith can only follow with this humility virtue. Because by definition, this is the repentance. Humility is, is kind of like the other side of repentance. It's submission to the Creator. And once that's straight, then we can trust Him. But if we've never submitted to Him as our Creator, we've never really reflected on His demands on us, His holiness and our, our sinfulness. And if we never reflected on that, um, or if we have reflected on that, then we come to the problem, well, now I'm afraid of Him. I'm like Adam and Eve in the garden. What did they do five minutes after they fell? They're putting on sewing on fig leaves and hiding. So if I'm really thinking of my Creator, I've got to go through the whole sequence until I get to the Gospel. And when I get to the Gospel, then I can rest because now He saved me. Now He promises me His atoning blood covers my sin. Now I'm at peace. Now I'm at rest. But you see, all that flows first from recognizing that I'm a creature. So Christ in His kenosis models what the humility ought to look like. What humility ought to look like. That's Christ's life in the New Testament. Now, please notice. Was Christ courageous? You bet. Was he every inch a man? Absolutely. But was he humble? Yes, he was. 
So courage and humility are not antonyms. But they're not identical, and there's a more complicated connection between them. If a person is humble, they will be courageous in a righteous way. If a person is not humble, they can be courageous in an arrogant way. So arrogance and humility can be the sources of a lot of the so-called virtues. Love can be a source, can be actually a fruit of arrogance. So, so it, I mean, it, arrogance can produce wonderful things. Arrogance can produce great artistry. Arrogance can produce great music. Arrogance can produce all kinds of things, cultural fruit. Arrogance can uh, can uh, produce wonderful personal relationships. Uh, because I get, you know, I'm, I'm proudful and I want to show everybody that I can get along with everybody and I'm the successful person and I do this and I do that. It's all fruit of arrogance. So, don't be deceived. Being humble is not walking around like this. It's in the head and in the heart recognizing who we are. We're creatures. So, the first thing we understand is that Jesus Christ patterns for us what humility is. And that's what Paul's saying because you notice in verse 3 and 4... He was talking about humility before he got to kenosis. So kenosis models that humility. If you turn to page 59, I've listed for you some verses there where this is traced not just in Paul, but in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus followed the Father's plan even when that plan required devaluation or emptying of the independent use of his divine attributes. He faced at this point the biggest temptation to pride ever faced in human history. Would he humble himself to endure the abuse of rebellious creatures and the wages of their sin when he could have remained in the tranquility and purity of heaven. That's the emptying. I mean, who wants to go walking in a sewer? And walking around in a, in a sewer is probably a very good picture of the way the Lord Jesus Christ, as God the Son, walked in our sinful fallen world. And probably spiritually it was a big sewer for him. And he did it for us. See, it's amazing grace. Now, the, re- the, the corollary to him doing that, the corollary and result of him humbling himself to his Father is that he's exalted. God exalts the humble. God exalts them because they submit to him. And notice these passages of Scripture. For it became him, and by the way, which of the personality, which of the Trinity is the him, We ought to be able to figure that one out. It became Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect. Who's the captain of salvation? Second person of Trinity. Who's the Him then? First person of Trinity. See how you want to analyze Scripture text when you read? Okay? And what does that tell us? To make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. That means that Jesus Christ, when he was a babe in his mother's arms, was not perfect. Now, we're not talking about imperfection morally. We're talking about growth of sanctification, of loyalty to God. That Adam and Eve had to be. I mean, even if sin had never come into the world, it still would have been a need for sanctification. Because God the Son, as a sinless person, required sanctification. So sanctification can't, always deal with the sin issue. For us it does because we started in the sewer. We didn't fall in. We were born in it. So for us, we can't recognize sanctification apart from sin. But in Jesus it was. He had no sin, but he had to be sanctified. 
So sanctification is, is a positive thing. It's a growth thing. It's a strengthening thing that comes about by obedience, 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 humility to his commands, and so on. We, who, now look at the next one, Hebrews 12 again, who endured the cross, despising the shame, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. See? Now, second, First Peter, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us a what? An example. Now, that couldn't be an example if he cheated and used his divine attributes every time he got in a jam. That wouldn't be an example, would it? So, see how kenosis underlies the logic of these texts? He suffered for us, leaving us an example, who did no sin, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges rightly. You see, he met the trial by being humble and exercising faith toward his Father. Committing. Committing what? He committed himself to him that judges righteously. It's a very powerful thing here. I mean, when we say this humility, it comes off like it's weak. It comes off like it's, it's impotent. But actually, it's the most powerful thing on earth because it can't be defeated. Think about it. If we are in any kind of a situation and God is all these things, sovereign, love, holy, omniscience, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, and eternal, and we commit our situation to Him, who's going to take Him on? You know? Any comers? Somebody want to argue? So, in the weakness of the humility is fantastic strength and energy to persevere. Christ modeled for us the cardinal virtue of humility before God in all situations. Humility before God is the basis of faith. When Christ was demeaned by evil men, Peter says he committed, it to himself, he committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now, we may sometimes think we're God's, but he was and is God. The implication of, is clear. If Christ had to stoop that low to obey God, there is nothing that God can ask us to do that is too low or too humble. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, here in the next quote is something from a Puritan. And I, I don't believe in everything the Puritans believed in. But I'll tell you what, there's very few times We have historical testimony of the fact that in England, when the Puritans ruled England, they said, you never want to debate one of these guys. You never wanted to meet them on the battlefield either. So they were very tough people. And they, they were very meditative. And on the inside, they were very humble. Now look at this. Here's Richard Baxter. Notice the dates, 1615 to 1691. And he's, talking to a, he's writing this to young pastors. And he's trying to get these guys to be sensitive to their flocks. And he does what the Puritans often would do. Instead of giving an imperative or a command and saying, all right, do it, what they did is they wove it like Paul did into the deep things of theology because it's the deep things of theology that energize you. The deep things of theology overwhelm the world. You get rooted into Christian doctrine and theology, the world just strikes you as amazingly trivial. The world is a lightweight. 
compared to the Trinity, the triune God. So look at Baxter and how he, how he reasons. Now, he's talking to young men now in the pastorate. Oh, then, let us hear those arguments of Christ whenever we feel ourselves growing dull and lifeless. Can you hear him saying, Did I die for these people? And will you then refuse to look after them? Were they worthy of my blood? And are not they worth your labor? Did I come down from heaven to seek and to save that which was lost? And will you refuse to go next door or to the next street or the village to seek them? How small is your labor or condensation compared to mine? I debase myself to do this, but it is your honor to be so employed. Have I done and suffered so much for their salvation, and will you refuse that little that lies upon your hands? Can you imagine how you feel after getting hit with something like this? But you see how powerful these Puritans are? See, these are the people that everybody thinks are prudes and idiots and so on, but never read them. See, they just hear about them. A second implication of kenosis is another little fiery topic, and this one concerns human relationships. Most of modern rebellion against authority in the home and in society, though triggered perhaps by poor leadership situations, comes from a misperception of subordination. The popular myth... Now, this is the key right here. This is the lie and the deception that is rampant in our society, even in our own evangelical Christian circles. The popular myth views subordination as one individual's being constitutionally inferior to another. So because I may have a relationship to a superior, maybe in my company, maybe in the military, maybe in the local church, but you have a superior person, maybe an elder. If you're a young officer, it may be a colonel in the military. You have an inferior. And that may be me. That may be you. And so now we have this relationship established. Now, the way we have been kind of programmed in our wonderful democracy is that everybody's equal. And if you don't show equality in every area, all the time, in every aspect, then you are demeaning people. Well, sorry, the whole home situation starts out with parents and children, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. So right there you've got an authority relationship. And of course when that unravels, like it is in our society, then it's going to unravel everywhere else because that's where humility and authority are learned. And if humility and authority are never learned in the home, then the policeman is going to teach the humility and authority. Or worse than that, you're going to get, meet somebody that's going to knock your block off because you're so arrogant. And it'll happen in the flesh or it'll happen somewhere else. But somehow it'll happen. And if it doesn't happen, it will happen in heaven or hell. So it's going to deal. That's the way God made the universe. Now, the popular myth views subordination as one individual's being constitutionally inferior to another. This myth flies in the face of the Trinity and kenosis. Even in the extreme case of subordination and kenosis, the son was not constitutionally inferior to the father. He was subordinate to the father, but he was not constitutionally inferior to him. This person that may be in charge, he may be an elder, he may be a colonel, he may be some superior in your company, may be an actual idiot. But in the situation, 
that's the way the structure is, and you follow it because of the office. Now, I may not like the person holding the office, but you have to respect the office. That doesn't mean, you know, there's no appeals and that kind of thing. I'm just saying that subordination doesn't necessarily imply constitutional inferiority. This person may be a magnificent person. And the superior person may not even have any of the qualities of the inferior person. I mean, maybe a wife married to a, a husband who's a jerk. And she may be a wonderful Christian person. And because she's subordinate and she's the wife, doesn't mean she means less. It doesn't mean she's valued less. doesn't mean God values her life less. But in the relationship, the relationship is different than value. That's the thing you want to think about with kenosis and trinity. Because if you get this screwed up, it affects the way you think in everyday life. And you've got to keep going back. Well, wait a minute. The Father and the Son have an order, and the Son is no less God than the Father. So that's where kenosis helps. Now, one example of the misunderstanding of subordination is the view in the women's liberation movement. This movement assumes that women's subordination in marriage to the husband is one of constitution, not one of role. Christian feminist writers like Scanzoni and Hardesty try to defend their notion with all subordination as repulsive, so they seek to refashion the subordination in the Trinity. Now, that's a good way of doing it. If what you're teaching conflicts with basic Christian doctrine, change the doctrine. Is Christ... Now, look, look what they write here now. This came out 20 years ago, but this is the Bible of the whole movement in evangelical circles. This book I'm quoting from. This is the Bible. This is where it all started in evangelical circles. Is Christ subordinate to the Father? Christ as God and man both rules and submits. He voluntarily, out of love, set aside the privileges of the Godhead to assume the work of redemption. That's okay, as a man. But he has now ascended to heaven to resume all his divine attributes. Excuse me? Resume all his divine attributes? When did he lose them? See, it's hard for them to think that Jesus Christ, while he's walking around here, actually had his divine attributes because it's hard for them to exist in any kind of a subordinate relationship without feeling demeaned. And they can't imagine then that Christ walked around in a, in a subordinate relationship and he must have emptied himself as that. He's got to go back and pick him up again. No, that's not the doctrine of kenosis. Sorry. And I just quote that. It's a great quote out of their book because it shows you how weird ideas are actually controlled, if you'll let them, they will be controlled by good, solid, biblical theology. And these weirdos, when they think consistently, are forced by logic to dismantle the key doctrines. And that's how you tell something's crazy here. Something doesn't fit. This just doesn't work out. Their theology is heretical. Christ did not ascend to heaven to resume his divine attributes because he had them always while on earth, as John's Gospel particularly shows. As the second person of the Trinity in heaven, now the Son has an ordered relationship with the Father that can be understood only in terms of subordination of earthly sons to earthly fathers. Why else do we still call him Father and Son? The very citation of 1 Corinthians 15 refutes their point. The Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the one they quote. Now you look at this and see if you get the same thing out of it they got out of it. First Corinthians fifteen twenty seven.
Now, this was their key proof text. This is where they said, See, when Jesus went to heaven, after all the work was done, then he picked up his attributes and moved on. Well, let's read verse 27 28 carefully. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when, now look at verse 28 carefully, and when all things are subjected to him, which trinity is that? First, second, third. When all things, the, the subject here is Christ. So when all things are subjected to him, see that they like that. Everything subjected to Christ, the second person is over everything. Wow, I like that role. But what do you do with the next clause? Then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him. And who's that talking about? The Father. So, sorry. Um, the, the proof text doesn't prove what they're trying to prove from the text. Okay, last, the third uh, implication has to do with the problem of the difference between Christ's knowledge and our knowledge, and that's so hairy we won't get into it tonight. We have the two, we've covered tonight, the two applications of the doctrine of the Trinity. That it supports the concept that the cardinal virtue, unlike Greek literature where it's love or it's courage or it's whatever, in the Bible, the cardinal virtue is humility. Good verse to remember, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of that fear of the Lord, that's humility. That's the kind of humility. We're not talking about weakness. We're not talking about humility via the person to person, man. We're talking about humility of us as individual people, as creator, creations, to our creator. In that vertical sense, that's the humility we're talking about. Then the second application we dealt with tonight is the issue of relationships and the inferiority-superiority linkage that does not in any way demean the value of the people in those relationships. Because if it's true, if it is true, work the logic backwards, if it is true that subordination relationships demean the inferior, then it must also be true that the Trinity is false. Father, we thank You for the Scriptures. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for Your long-enduring patience with us as sinners that You have literally walked through a sore in order to save us. And may we ever be thankful the fact that You did do that. In Christ's name, Amen. just anticipated the whole next lesson on impeccability. Very good, insightful question because it does logically follow. Everybody hear the question? Was Christ constrained in the middle of these temptations and so on and choices by his divine nature? Even though it was in his humanity, because his humanity was in union with his deity, was he thus constrained? And 
that that happened, and then people thought that through, and that was that's resolved in the next doctrine that you've got handed out tonight on impeccability, and that's a very important point because out of that comes the answer of why he can be a sympathetic high priest to our temptations, and you wonder, well, wait a minute, how can Christ be? I mean, you know, he was never sinned like I have, and. You know, here I am walling around, and how can he be a sympathetic high priest to me? Well, it's because he's not sympathetic to the sin, but he's sympathetic to our temptations. Well, then you say, how can Christ be tempted? I mean, come on. He, he couldn't have sinned, so how could he be tempted if he couldn't sin? And that's the struggle of impeccability. But that's good, because see, Laura picked up that kenosis is leading that way. And that's obviously an associated doctrine. Sorry, but we'll answer it next week. <laughs> but that kind of brings up what was bothering me from last week and into this week, is that in a sense God took the very big risk if Christ had the real possibility of sinning mm-hmm. in his humanity. I mean, this was, you know, the whole structure of the universe was at risk here. Yeah, and, and that's, again, part of the impeccability issue is that, as Wade said, um, God took a big risk here in the sense that if it were possible that Christ could sin, I mean, the whole salvation plan would have been brought down. Satan, Satan, by the way, obviously believed that he could, right? I mean, he concertedly attacked Christ. And here he is probably the most brilliant creature ever made, Satan. And so he's, you know, his IQ is far above ours. And his analysis of the whole situation was that he could do it. Now, what we find with Satan, however, is the genius born of arrogance. He is brilliant, but in one sense, he's brilliantly stupid because he trips himself up because he is arrogant. And this is not to demean his intelligence because he's brilliant. But because he is so utterly arrogant toward God, his own intellect has been blinded. So that while his intellect can reach thousands of miles beyond ours, it perpetually reaches in the wrong direction. So he becomes a brilliant idiot, a brilliant fool. And, 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 and versions of that are you, you abound in a society. You can have absolutely st- stunningly brilliant people that are so off the wall and I don't mean you know foolish ones but I mean really far out in some very basic things and can can become heads of cults can sweep millions along with them and of course we're going to find in the future there's going to be one person that does that very effectively and it's the antichrist so so satan thinks that it is possible to stop the God-man in his tracks. And he did so by tempting Christ three ways in Matthew 4. In the same three ways, he worked with Adam and Eve. There was a temptation of the flesh, there was a temptation to the lust of the, the, the spirit, and a temptation of the eyes. Look, he says, as he took Jesus to the temple, look upon all the kingdoms of the world, and look at the glory and the honor that I can give you. Just bow to me. Which, by the way, implies something. It implies that he is the ruler of this world. It had to be a genuine offer, did it not? 
that these are mine. And they'll be yours, Jesus. All you have to do is give me the word. And, And then the rock, you know, the lust of the flesh, wanting to eat, hungry. Oh, turn this stone into bread. You can do it, Jesus. Just use your divine attributes against the Father's will. And, you're, and you, you'll, you can do that. And that would be so nice for you to watch you do that. So, so the, the, the collision between Satan and Christ does affirm that in Satan's mind, it was possible for Jesus to sin. If he, if he didn't think so, he'd never have tried it. Yeah, with yeah, with his name tag on. <laughs> oh, I, I we we have it. In, remember, we have an abbreviated version in in what half a dozen verses in Matthew four. So that that would took that was an extensive period of thing. And I think if you think of the temptations there, after forty days of fasting you would be vulnerable too. And, and probably it came in the guise, uh, do I really have to stay true to my humanity here? I mean, this is pretty extreme. Why can't I just kind of jump the track here and take care of my needs here? So yeah, it probably was dressed up. Uh, the, the issue of the look at the kingdoms of this world what is the ultimate role of the, of the Messiah? To rule the kings of the world. So you see there, he's playing on a genuine messianic goal. It's just we're going to get there a little, by a shortcut, see. So it's woven into the Messiah's calling. But we really, I think we have to kind of meditate on this because we, we get slammed around. But, but there's, a, there's an ingenious streak to temptations. And the problem is that usually we're foggy. Temptations usually overwhelm us when we're not thinking through things. We're acting emotionally or we're just tired. We're not thinking right. And that's when we make stupid, stupid decisions. Get our eyes off the Lord and so on. And uh, I think what's so amazing is that Jesus was a model for us in the way he dealt with those situations that, frankly, I'd flake out. I mean, think of what went on in Gethsemane. What are the disciples doing in Gethsemane? Sleeping. Well, it wasn't because, you know, they just ah, take a nap. Those guys were tired. This had gone, they had some emotionally wrenching time. So this wasn't easy life here. And it probably deeply, profoundly bothered them that they saw this person. They thought, hey, you know, he's going to bring in the millennial kingdom. And now he's going to get crucified. What happened to all this kingdom business? So they were bothered, they were tired, and they collapsed. They just collapsed. But Jesus didn't. And the fact that he didn't, we can't say, because we're tempted to do, oh, well, he was God. No. In that situation, he was not relying on his omnipotence. So the fact that Jesus held in there and was thinking things through is our model. He did it when our representatives are the disciples. You know, <laughs> that's where we'd be. 
And even a more profound statement of Christ's fantastic discipline in as weak, as under pressure, as tired, as exhausted as he would be in these things, his mind was always stayed upon the Word of God. Think of Psalm 22. As he was dying for our sins, he was actually reciting Psalm 22. You know, uh, you hear sermons um, around Good Friday about, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in the Gospels, you read that. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What people don't understand is, is that in psalmology, that is in the structure of the Psalms, they didn't have Psalm 32, Psalm 110, Psalm 22. See, they didn't have titles. That's the English translations that have those titles. The way you referred to a psalm in Jesus' day was referring to the first verse. The first verse of the Hebrew psalms in the Hebrew Bible are the title. So then when you read in the Gospels that he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What it's really saying is, he said Psalm 22. He recited the whole psalm. He didn't just say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was thinking through what was going on in the theology of Psalm 22. He saw himself at that instant of dying for us as fulfilling exactly every word, every jot, every tittle in Psalm 22. So where was his mind? Was it on the pain of the nails? Was it on the pain of our sin? It was still focused on the Word of God. Now, I don't have that discipline. And I've met very few people that do. But to be able to stay our minds under the most appalling circumstances on the Word of God, if Jesus did that and He is our model, what does that tell you about therapy and what does that tell you about meeting pressures in life? How did He meet them? It certainly wasn't by the doctrine of kenosis now. Now that we learn that, we know that Jesus did not meet His trials and His temptations with His deity. And then that means that we've got to relook. This guy's a model. How did he do it? And think of this in Psalm 22 when here he is bearing the sin of the world. He's been deserted by the Father. It's absolute blackness for him. His Father turns his back because it cannot look upon sin. So it's like Jesus looks there and he doesn't see his Father anymore. So in the absence of that horrible time when fellowship, as it were, were, were sep- he was separated while he was dying for sins, the thing that kept him going was the only thing he had, which wasn't even a, a, a feeling, emotional connection with the Father, because that was severed then. Even in that emotional severance, he went back to the Word of God that he had learned for years. Remember that verse in, Psalm, in, in Isaiah 50 we learned last week? He waketh me morning by morning to teach, to teach me, to teach me, to teach me. What did they teach me? The Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. His soul was so filled with the Word of God that even when his father turned his back, the Word of God cycled up here, went through his brain. His thoughts were always on the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word, more precious than anything else. So, to me, that's the model. And that tells me something like, when I don't do that, that tells me, well, cloth, you idiot, that's, you know, what do you want? I've given you the model. What's your problem? And it's interesting. I don't know if you heard Chuck Colson tonight, but on Breakpoint, it was interesting. I was just driving home listening to him, and he said, 
what was striking about the incident out in the Denver area, um, Laura's dad, by the way, used to teach in the Bible college out in Denver. I was a pastor there. Um, the Colson said, he said, you know, the school authorities, after this massacre, brought in dozens of grief counselors, professional psychologists, to talk to the kids. And the teachers were all saying to the kids, you know, you've got to go down there and get your grief handled. And, uh, and I, hey, that's okay. I mean, this pagan world does the best it can. And it, they mean well. And the kids weren't going to the grief counselors. Okay, well, what's this, this? No kids going to the grief counselors? I mean, they had to snag the kids to get them to go in the grief counselors. You know where they were all going? Evangelical churches. The pastors and the youth ministers, they were saying they were besieged with dozens and dozens of these kids coming to them. That want, they, and Wake Colson put it, he said, they didn't want to deal with their grief. They wanted to deal with the big issue of why did this happen? You see, because the grief is an emotion. And all that the professional grief counselor can tell you is, oh, vent your emotions. You want to scream? Go scream. Just go out in the doors and do it somewhere. Just get it out. Well, that doesn't do anything. You get it out and then you keep thinking the same thought again. So, you don't deal with what the kids wanted to get a framework we would call the doctrine of suffering. They wanted somebody to explain how could this happen in our backyard? How could my friend get shot in the face because she acknowledged that she would believe in God? And I was there and her blood spilled all over me because I was 12 inches away from the bullet when it hit her body. And I'll never forget that. I mean, I can see her head disintegrating as a bullet hit. And that's a scene that you probably and I probably would never, you know, that'll be with us for the rest of our life. So what do you do now? Put it out of your head? No, you can't because it keeps coming back. So you do what that strategic envelopment does. Remember the fish eating the little fish? You envelop that thing with a divine viewpoint of the Word of God. So it's there. It's not denied. It's reinterpreted in the light of the Word of God. And that solves the grief. Yeah, there's tears. There's heartache. Not, you know, everything isn't going to be all right emotionally for a while. But the heart, the sting is taken out because it's controlled. What do we say about the doctrine of evil in the Christian position versus paganism? Elementary. It started, it didn't exist, it started, and God's going to deal with it. So what do we say? Evil is bracketed. Does paganism have anything like that? Absolutely not. Evil all the way back? I mean, amoebas were eating amoebas. Struggle of nature. Red in tooth and claw. And it's always going to be that way. Wonderful place. Everybody's going to continue to die for millions of years. Death goes on. Hey, part of life. And what Colson pointed out in the program tonight, he said, you know, all that the professional grief counselor could tell the kids was, because they somewhat Freudian, he cited one of the experts as saying a lot of this still comes out of old Sigmund, um, basically that grief is just an emotion and the way to handle it is sever your emotional link with a lost loved one. Huh? Sever your, well, sever your emotional link with a loss. Like, excuse me, that solves my grief? See, that's like taking a drink. What, what does the pagan world... But think through the diagram, remember? What if you are a pagan and you don't believe in limited evil? How do you cope? Well, I think the only way I could cope, if I really believed that, would be through some form of anesthetic. Now, it could be a pill... 
It could be some debauchery. It could be alcohol. Anything to get my mind off of that. And what do we see in our society? Debauchery, pills, and alcohol. What is the problem? Because people are hurting. It's not just that people like to go out and do drugs. It's they're doing drugs because they're trying to anesthetize the pain. Well, why is the pain there? Because this is a fallen world and this is sinful. And, and they're not getting the gospel or they're not listening to it. That's the end. Well, these kids out there were. Evidently, there were enough Christians in that high school to bear enough witness in a clear form. I mean, I don't think we, I've seen a, a tragedy in this country where the media talked about kids being born again Going, listening to the Word of God. I mean, a fantastic testimony. just overflowed right in the pagan media. And you know why I think it is? It overflowed in the pagan media because the pagan media didn't have anything else to say. I mean, after they said the kids got shot, you got five other paragraphs. What are you going to write about? Everybody's crying. Okay, that's paragraph two. What do I put in paragraph three, four, and five? Well, I've got to tell what the kids are saying. Well, here's what they're saying. They're saying, I have Christ. So I better put that in there. It fills up the column. So... It got out into the press. A wonderful testimony. It's a totally different thing. Given the premises of paganism, given those premises, the far-out artist, the far-out philosopher, uh, Nietzsche, one of they said, uh, the only way Nietzsche could get on with his life was realizing that he was on the, on, the, on the precipice of a pit of hell and that he had to reconcile himself to walking around it. And once, once he said, that's my life, and nothing else, I, 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 you know, there's nothing else out there now I will live that way. And he started working philosophically that out. And, of course, and those people are more sensitive, but the people that Donna's talking about, that she worked with in drug rehab and other places, they may not be as articulate. But what we have to be careful of is, as Christians, we never lose sight of the fact that whether they're articulate or not, that's what's happening. They can't tell you that's what's happening. But we know from the Word of God the superior method of interpreting, because the Word of God is the authoritative interpreter of every experience, including so-called mental illness, then when we interpret by the Word what's going on in this experience, we say, oh, that's what's happening. And it makes sense once you see it. But when you're in it, 
when you're trapped in it and you, you just have automatically kind of absorbed the pagan worldview, you just do that. So that's why you see all the efforts in society to go to Stoicism now, the big thing, all lots of new books now about Stoicism. It's, it's the world's attempt to stop this. The, it's, the lid is boiling, the pot's moving, and we've got to put the lid back on here. See? But it's going to fail. And it's going to fail when we, it's predictable. This has been... The Stoics, it failed. The original Stoics failed. So why are we going back 2,400 years to Stoicism? I mean, Paul's laughing at Stoicism in Acts 17. And we haven't learned anything over 1,000, what, 900 years since the, the Areopagus Address. But here we are because we're desperate. We don't like the debauchery that we see. Pragmatically, we know it's destructive. So we'll flock to any kind of a solution to put the lid on. And now, see, as Christians, we have to watch it because we're not going to agree with the lid that's being put on the pot. It's like one father whose girl was shot out in Colorado said, and I loved it, interviewed in the media. And the media, you know, were trying to manipulate and answer. You know how these reporters ask you these, these questions and, you know, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't the way you answer them. So this, I forgot what the question was, but he was trying to get the dad to say, golly, what a fouled up school system and golly, what idiot teenagers and that sort of stuff. And the father just quietly, after losing his daughter, he looked at the reporter and he says, no. He says, the real problem is God has been left out of the school system for the last 20 years and we're just paying the price. These are the consequences. Yes, that's the answer. Absolutely. Of course, the reporter didn't like that. But it was live interview, so what could he do? <laughs> okay, uh, next week we're going to follow up uh, Laura's question with the doctrine of impeccability.